it's the time of the year, right, where we become painfully aware of where we're not, who we're not, and maybe what we should have done differently in the year earlier. And really what the month of January has become for, for many, if you're anything like me, is it's kind of come for like a, like a time of reflection. And, and that reflection is either one, it's caused you a depression because you have reflected on all of the old New Year's resolutions that you got nothing accomplished. You didn't do any of them or one of them. Or, or uh, you feel somewhat excited because you get to click restart and you get to try all over again until February again, right? But uh, nonetheless, January is all about kind of how can we make ourselves a better person? We don't really know what that probably means, but it's kind of that, right? The restart re-energizes us, and we're like, I'm going to be a better person, a more productive person, or whatever it is in 2019. And the result is that churches and gyms and, and nutrition shops do booming business this time of the year, at least for maybe the first few months, like until March or something. But uh, everyone kind of starts out with these like high motivations and this like really optimistic mentality, right? That this is going to be different or something along those lines. I, I remember of a story um, when uh, when we got our, our dog Zara, and uh, we actually got our our dog two years ago on January first. And uh, I was kind of like, we're gonna have the best dog ever. I was gung ho on like I was reading stuff like how do you get your dog to sit and not pee on the couch or your wife's side of the bed or whatever, right? And uh, I decided we were gonna, I was going to take her to these classes. Now, if you've ever met my dog, you know that she has more energy than a three-year-old on a Red Bull, right? I mean, she is berserk. She's crazy. She almost has about as much energy as me. And so anyways, we paid all of this money to take her to these classes to teach her obedience and to teach her commands. And I was hoping a backflip, but they said that corgis couldn't do that. And so we went through, like, these classes, and we went through, like, I think six classes was the very first round of it. And then she graduated. And I think I have a photo, actually. There she is. She's so cute, right? She's the best. And so um, the last week, we tried to sign her up for kind of round two, which was, I guess, more of an advanced training, and I don't know really what that meant, but I was about it. And just before we were about to sign up, um, the teacher kind of asked to meet with my wife and I, and she said that she's been observing us over the last few months, and that uh, she didn't think Zara was quite ready for round two, and that she should, although she graduated just barely, she should go back and do round one. And so my wife kind of looked at me and looked at her and said, well, why not? I mean, she graduated. Like, why don't you think she's going to be able to finish or be able to go on to round two? And the girl just pointed at me and said, um, how to say this, uh, your husband's crazy. Right? He's just got too much energy, and she's feeding off of him, and he, he just goes berserk, and she goes berserk. He's just not ready. She's just not ready for round two. And so moral of the story is I got also signed up for obedience training. I start next week, but I'm just kidding. But anyways, it kind of ended up being this pretty big waste of time and money. And as I was thinking about that memory this, this last week, I was kind of thinking about my, my life. And not only have I wasted hours and I've wasted money, but I've also even wasted maybe even seasons of my life, maybe even years of my life. And if you're anything like me, you maybe look back at the previous year and you ask, man, what did I really accomplish with those 365 days? I mean, sure, right? I accomplished some stuff. And man, was I busy. I mean, this last year, just to tell you how crazy it was, um, this month, last year, I became the young adults pastor. And then about in April, um, we became, my wife and I, we started helping out in high school. I became the high school pastor. Before that, I was a junior high pastor, and junior high had four services a week, and then I took on young adults. That was my fifth tonight, and then high school has two. So it's just been a crazy year, and so yeah, I did, I, it was busy, and, and I just didn't sit around and do nothing, but if I were to write down what I did last year, I don't know if I really accomplished a whole lot, and, and if you're anything like me, you're kind of glad for the restart, right? And the new year isn't a real restart, right? I mean, you get the same opportunity you get every morning right after you hit snooze eight times, right? But whether... 
we, the restart, it just feels good. I'm reminded of a story um, I heard in one of my Bible classes at um, Biola um, around this time of the year, many years ago. And it's a true story of a Chinese commander in the third century who led his troops in kind of this really intense, this mighty battle. And he's told his kind of his officers to do something really interesting. He told his officers to burn the boats and all the rations except three months, or no, sorry, three days worth. And so he was kind of sending a really clear message. And the message essentially was this, that there is no turning back. And so he forced the men either to win the battle and kind of these overwhelming odds or they were going to die. There was essentially no retreat. And because there was really no other option, they had to fight to win. And as history kind of records it, 20 thousand men defeated 300,000 of their enemies. Now, at the essence of this kind of story, the burning boat kind of principle represents um, kind of a point of no return, a psychological commitment where you recognize that you've kind of crossed the line and you can't go back. There's no hedging. There's no kind of looking over your shoulder. Kind of that everything now, all thoughts and efforts must be focused on succeeding in this new reality that the old way is gone, that you can't turn back to it. After hearing the story, I'm kind of left with this question. After I read that story and heard that story, this is kind of the question that I came up with. What is something that I have to get done? Something that I just can't quit. Something that is, that is so important that I can't retreat from it. Something that needs to be a priority in my life above all else. You know, the principle of the, of the burning boat is kind of an incredible, simple idea, but has a profound impact if it's actually applied. Years ago, our staff read a book by Andy Stanley named Visionaring. And by the way, if you're into like setting goals and learning how to create goals, that's an incredible book. It's Visionaring by Andy Stanley. And um, Cody actually had our staff read it. And it kind of journeys through the, uh, the, the chronicles of, I was going to say chronicles of Narnia, chronicles of Nehemiah's um, life. And it kind of speaks directly to this, like about what does it look like to create a goal, about your life being centered around one specific thing. And in fact, in, in our main campus right now, Cody's actually just launched a series this weekend entitled Eight Percenters. And in it, he's kind of journeying through, like, yeah, the stories of, of Nehemiah's life, and, and, and he's going to do, like, four weeks of it. And so today, I'm just going to do kind of a quick flyby over the story um, to share one point that has really encouraged me to make this year kind of different than other, other years. And I encourage you to go check out online or go to our main campus to hear more about the story of Nehemiah because it has some incredible um, points for our life. But before we kind of journey into it, let me kind of set the scene or maybe paint the picture and give you somewhat of the historicity and cultural kind of atmosphere around our story. The, the book of Nehemiah was written 400 years um, after David and Solomon in about 445 B.C. And it's fact, in written in response to Israel's kind of disobedience. And it kind of explains the consequences of Israel disobeying God. Now, something you guys need to know that may help you understand the story a little more, is in the Old Testament, there's, there's six covenants. And a covenant was a promise that God made to people, uh, very specific people or groups of people, sometimes Israel or just one person like Abraham or something like that. And there are two types of covenants. One was a conditional covenant, which meant that like the other person, whoever the other group was or individual, needed to uphold their side of the bargain. And then the other types were unconditional, like regardless of how stupid those people are being, God is going to bless them or God is going to do something regardless of the other person holding up their end of the bargain or not. And so what's interesting is kind of during this time is um, they're in something called the Davidic Covenant. And all that means is that um, God promised uh, David that there was going to be a leader in Israel as long as they obeyed God. God would bless Israel. God would make sure that they had food, they had water, that they would have money, that they would be a great nation. But the second they disobeyed God, which you probably see that in your own life, right? If you disobey God, there are consequences. See, I think God is for our human flourishing. And if we, if we disobey God, then we're disobeying the source of all life. Therefore, our quality of life goes down. And see, 
during this disobedience, kind of Israel is in the lowest time that they've ever been. I mean, they're being enslaved, and let me give you some kind of things that are going on. Around about 140 years before uh, Nehemiah, Jerusalem was attacked and destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar's army, by the Babylonian army. And this is, for those of you guys that know kind of the time, it's during the, the time of um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so this great city with huge walls were, were completely demolished, and the gates and the buildings were all burned down, including Solomon's temple. And the destruction of the city... Um, what ended up happening after that was the Babylonians enslaved all of the Israelites, the Jews, for about 70 years after that. And about 48 years after that, the Babylonian Empire gets conquered by the Persians. And so now the Jews lived under the Persian Empire. And about 22 years after that, many Jews were kind of allowed to go back to their homeland, back to Jerusalem. But we're thinking, what, 92 years later, right? So none of these people have ever even been to Jerusalem, right? And so although it was their homeland, uh, they lived in Persia, which is modern-day Iran. And this is the only place they ever known, so they would never go back to Jerusalem. I mean, it would be like, because I'm Italian, and my last name is Cianfrani, that you would send me to Italy, even though I don't know the language, right, and things like that. It just didn't make sense, so many people didn't go back. But that kind of sets the framework of kind of us being able to understand who Nehemiah is and, and, and stuff along those lines. And so let me kind of maybe tell you just a little about who Nehemiah was. So Nehemiah was a foreigner. He was a Jew living in, in Persia. And he had a really interesting job. And if you're in our main campus, you probably heard Cody say something that he was the cupbearer to the king. And the cupbearer had a really interesting job. The cupbearer's job was basically to eat the food, drink the wine, and make sure that it wasn't poisoned. So he'd eat it, sit in a room, and if he was all right for a few hours later, he would go and say, yeah, the wine is totally all right, or whatever it is. And about right after that, um, the story kind of begins. And the story in, in the book of Nehemiah really has four kind of specific sections. And I want to kind of walk through each section really quick. And so the first kind of opening part one of the story opens up kind of with Nehemiah's brother coming, visiting back from Jerusalem. And Nehemiah says, all right, I've never been to Jerusalem. That's our homeland, right? So like what's going on there? And kind of follows his kind of his brother's response. It's in Nehemiah 1 verse 3. Those who survived the exile, remember they're in exile because of disobedience, are back in the providence, are in great trouble and disgrace. The walls of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. So walls, in the, if, you're, if you've ever been to, like, um, any of the Middle Eastern countries before, or you've been to, like, ancient Greece, or, or you've been to Rome, you'll notice that they have these huge walls around the ancient cities. And that's because the ancient world was brutal, right? And, and, and walls were the city's only way of, of defense. Now, because of the walls of Jerusalem were, were burned down, were broken, had huge gaps and holes in them, um, terrible things were happening to the Jews that were still living in, in Jerusalem. So it, it was, uh, the stories are telling that men would be enslaved. They would be like an indentured servants, and they would work them to death. Um, the women would be abused and would be raped, and kids would be orphaned and, and, and also used and abused. And, and so terrible things are happening in the homeland. And so Nehemiah most likely probably never actually was at, has ever been to Jerusalem. But as a faithful Jew, this was devastating. The promised land that was the Jewish people's land that was promised through Abraham has been kind of destroyed, that it lays in ruins. And it would be like kind of migrating from a foreign country and then hearing about how that country has collapsed and that your people are suffering, that they're going through traumatic experiences and things like that. And so Nehemiah's response is in verse 4. It says this, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. See, what ends up happening is Nehemiah begins to have this kind of burdening on his heart. And this is kind of what Cody talked about this weekend. Kind of a tugging on his heart to, to care for or accomplish what has been laid on his heart by hearing and by seeing what kind of his people were going through and the condition of the city. See, he knew if that he could rebuild the wall that would tremendously help his people, that his people would be safe, 
that the economy could flourish again and that human flourishing would come back to the city. And this, is be, this kind of became his one mission, like the one thing he was going to set his life on, or at least for the last few seasons of his life, he was going to make his life about rebuilding this wall, this city. It kind of became his kind of burning boat moment. See, if I were to ask you, if there's one thing that you could accomplish this year that will make your life better or more on track, what would it be? Some of you, you immediately know that there are some things. It's been lingering around in your, in your schedule or in your mind for a while. And for some of you, you may need to think a little bit about it. For maybe for you, it's a broken relationship that just needs to get mended, right? There, there's a parent or a sibling or a grandparent or a friend that you have some tension with, and you've had tension with a really long time because they said some things they shouldn't have said, you said some things you shouldn't have said, and now you guys are just butting heads. And that relationship needs to be mended. Or maybe there's a relationship that needs to end. Maybe you know you're in a toxic relationship, and it's causing you to do things and say things that you thought you never would do. You know that relationship needs to end, but you're having a tar- hard time trusting God. Or maybe you're in financial debt, and that needs to get paid off this next year. Maybe you're at the student loans, or maybe it's just that you're kind of, as baby boomers say, you're trying to keep up with the Jonas. You're kind of com- like in competition with people. You're trying to have the nicest stuff or the newest iPhone and all that type of stuff, and it's causing you to be in debt. Or maybe it's an addiction or a habit that needs to be overcome. Maybe you're watching something you know you're not supposed to be watching, and this is the year that you're going to break that addiction. Maybe you drink a little too much. And maybe you would never call yourself an alcoholic, and maybe your friends would never even call you an alcoholic, but there are too many nights where you're drunk. See, Nehemiah knows his one thing, and he talked to God about it, and he didn't rush into it, and he patiently waited, and then he prayed, and then he planned. See, if your year could be about anything, my hope and my prayer is this. If your year, 2019, could be about anything, I want it to be a year of praying for you guys, and from those prayers, you get the plans that God wants for your life. See, one day, what ends up happening is after Nehemiah is kind of praying and things like that, he, he walks into the, um, into, the, into the room where the king is. And this is a big deal. If you were ever in the presence of the king and you were frowning or you weren't excited to see the king, he could kill you. In fact, the king wasn't known for being a gracious man, a man full of mercy and forgiveness and things like that. He was actually known to be a really harsh man. He's killed people for being in his presence and not greeting him properly. So Nehemiah walks in, and he's got a kind of a down face because he's sad of what, what's going on in his hometown, in, in the city um, that was promised to his ancestors. And so ne- the, the king looks over and says, Nehemiah, what's wrong? And Nehemiah does something interesting. He could have said, like, oh, my, I have a, something's wrong with my face. I don't know, right? Like, but he seizes this moment, and he says this. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. So he essentially says, because he liked Nehemiah, he said, Nehemiah, what's your plan? Like, well, okay, what are you going to do about this? And you have to keep in mind that he's a servant, not, more like an indentured servant, like a slave, actually. And so Nehemiah continues, and he asks for time off. He asks for a small army for protection and then resources to rebuild the wall that would be millions and millions of dollars. And this is a crazy ask because he is essentially asking for time off and resources to rebuild the walls of a city that was once a threat to that nation and could potentially be a threat in the future. And so God ends up being with Nehemiah, however, because he's been praying about it and things like that, and God grants his request, I mean, the king grants his request. In fact, the king not just does that, he makes him the governor of the entire city. So now he has like legal authority and things like that. And so he makes his way over to Jerusalem and with the men and the building and the resources and the money and the small army to protect them. And he does an interesting thing. For three days, he just circles the city, not really telling anybody what he's doing and why he's there, but he's taking copious notes of what needs to be changed and, and things like that. And so on the third day, he decides he's going to rally up the entire 
group of people, and he's going to delegate what needs to get done. It says this in, in chapter 2, verse 17 and 18. You see the trouble that we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them that the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start building, rebuilding, so they begin this good work. So kind of part two of the story kind of starts off with things going pretty smoothly. And wow, wouldn't that be great if when you and I have set out to do something, have make God a priority in our life, make school a priority in our life, make our friends or our family or whatever it may be a priority in our life, if things always worked out smoothly. But that's not how life works. If there was left hooks and it's just not the way it should be. And that's the very same thing that kind of happens with Nehemiah. Things kind of start off smoothly until the governors of the surrounding cities aren't very happy and begin to mock him and mock the Jews for rebuilding the wall. And so when the mocking seemed to really have no effect on them, they started to make threats. It says this in uh, chapter 4, verse 7 and 9. But when Sanballat and Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites and the men of Ashdod, heard that the repairs to Jerusalem wall had gone ahead and the gaps were being closed. Remember, they did not want those gaps to be closed, so they continued to come in and steal and, and pillage the village. Um, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up together against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. So Nehemiah did something really interesting. He gave everyone weapons with one hand, and the other hand, he asked them to like put plaster up, put the bricks up, and make the wall. So with one hand, they have a knife or whatever, and then the other hand, they're actually, they're working, and they do this day and night, 24-7. And so this is kind of this interesting kind of view that I have in my mind. So the outside, they're facing all of these external oppositions for what they think God wants them to do and things along those lines. And then they're also facing some things that are going on inward. See, there's some crazy things that are happening actually inside the walls of Jerusalem at the time. There's an economic meltdown. That's because of these poor people were being abused by the rich people. So these rich Jews were essentially exploiting the poor by taking away their land and selling their children because they couldn't pay their debts. And not just that, when Nehemiah hears of this, he, they're kind of abusing the, their own citizens and their brothers and sisters. He gets furious. So he has to put out the kind of fire over here by having the rich cancel the debts of the poor and having them band together on this division that God gave him. And all throughout this time, it ends up being about 12 years in total, Nehemiah had dodged many of the attacks so far, but his enemies had one last attack, and that was an attack on his life. And it says this in chapter 6, verse 5 and 7. Is reported among the nations, and Geshem, Geshem is a northern Arabian leader who is opposed, who hates Nehemiah, says it's true that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king, and even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king, so come, let us confer together. So there's a rumor going around, and this was this kind of threat to kind of, the rumor was dangerous because it was, essentially going to turn the entire empire on Nehemiah by saying that all Nehemiah was really trying to do was to rebel against the king and start his own empire. So Geshem is kind of telling Nehemiah, come, let's meet so we can sort this out, this rumor that we've been hearing, which is the rumor he actually started. And he did all of this really to kind of plot him off the wall so that he could end up take, so he could take his life because Geshem didn't want the wall of the city to be rebuilt. So part three of our story kind of sets itself in the middle of this tension, in the middle of this kind of opposition. As his enemies are trying to lure him out of the city, and this is causing crazy pressure on all the people that are working, they start freaking out. But he's not really buying into those rumors because he's certain of what God told him he was going to do. And so Nehemiah says something that's the point of our conversation today, and we're going to spend the rest of our time focusing on this next verse. Nehemiah 6.3 says this, I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? In other words, here's what he's saying. 
I will finish this whether it kills me. Whether I'm do- what I'm doing here is so important that there is nothing that will stop me. Even the threat of death itself will not stop me from finishing what I believe God has prompted and wants me to start and wants me to finish. Now, obviously, I, you know, when I think about this story and how it relates to my, my life, I've never been in, like, that type of pressure. I've never had those types of threats on my life. But I do remember years ago me telling my parents um, that I, I was going to intern at this church. This is eight years ago. And I'll never forget what my dad said to me. We're at lunch, and he told me this. He said that I was wasting my life, that I was abandoning my plans for my life for a fairy tale. In fact, so I, the plans for my life were I wanted to be a police officer. I was going to join the Army, and then from the Army, I was going to be a police officer. I want to be on a SWAT team. I want to be in the FBI. I want to be on the counterterrorism SWAT team unit. That was my plan, right? I had it out since I was like two. That was like the thing that I wanted to do. I come from like a military family. And so that was like the plan that I had for my life. My dad was telling me that I was abandoning my plan, the good plan, for a fairy tale. And many years ago, the thing that was kind of essential for me, eight years ago, the thing that was essential for me, if you want to say my wall that I need not come off, was I needed to build a relationship with God. For me, I had to come to the realization that my dad just had a different worldview than me. And that the most important thing that I could be doing, despite the opposition, despite the tension it was creating with my family, and then they were saying they were going to stop paying for things and whatever it was, was I needed to invest my life with God. And I can promise you it was the most rewarding thing that I've ever done. And so part four of the story kind of opens up with Nehemiah, seeing kind of the, the results of his obedience and the results of his kind of focus. And it says this in, in, in verse 15. So when the wall was completed on the 25th of Elu, it's a Hebrew calendar month, in 52 days, when all the enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of God. Okay, we're at the end of the story. What does this mean for you and what does this mean for me? Nehemiah is an incredible story to read in the beginning of the new year. It talks about goals and what you need to accomplish because Nehemiah knew that he had this one thing he needed to accomplish. So the question I have for you tonight is this. What is yours? What does your burning boat thing need to be this year? Earlier, I said it could be a broken relationship that needs to be mended. You've you've harbored these these feelings of resentment and bitterness towards this individual so long that it's slowly killing you. I've used this before. I said that you can't step into the future that God has for you, chained into the past by bitterness, resentment, and hate. We have to be people, if we're calling ourselves Christians, to be people who are forgiving. The second is maybe, maybe it's a relationship that needs to end. I mean, you know you should stop spending time with this person or these groups of people because they're dragging you down spiritually, they're dragging you down emotionally, maybe even physically, but you're just afraid of being alone or losing a friend, and so it's difficult for you to trust God. Maybe I said it's a financial debt that needs to be paid off. These loans have been hanging over your head, and you just can't seem to stop spending long enough to get them paid off. Or maybe I said earlier it was an addiction or it was a habit that you need to overcome. Maybe you drink a little too much, and now people are saying something. Or maybe you're just terrified of a secret that you're hiding from a boyfriend or girlfriend. Or maybe you need to rethink your priorities. Maybe you call yourself a Christian. But let's be honest, maybe he's just the last thing on your priority list. I mean, you swore to yourself that once you made a certain amount of money, or you got the job, or you got into the school, or you, whatever it is, you had a certain lifestyle, that you, you would start spending time with family or friends or start spending more time with God. But you're now just growing apart from God, farther from God, and farther from the people that you said you wouldn't. And now you just feel hopeless. Or maybe it's physically. You keep telling yourself that you're going to start working out and have, you have plenty of time to eat healthy. But as you get older, those habits are more difficult to create. I want you guys to remember this tonight, that our outcomes are a product of our habits and decisions. And essentially, that's just a different way to say this. Our decisions lead us to a destination. Where are your decisions leading you? 
and Cody and I have talked about this a lot, that we as young adults are in something called the decision decade. The next 10 years of our life are the most important years of our lives because they really set up the scaffolding to support our futures. And they also set up the scaffolding for how high our futures are able to go. I was thinking about this this last week and stories in my own life and people in my own life, and I was reminded of a conversation that I had with my dad um, a week before he passed away, which actually happens to be this week, um, four years ago. And uh, I took my dad to lunch, and the entire lunch, he was just kind of telling me how he just didn't really have much of a will to live any longer. I could see it in his face, like there was just, didn't want to get up anymore. There was like no real like ambition. There was no real reason for him to continue on in this life. And as an atheist, he didn't have any hope. And he was reaping a life sowed by making unwise decisions. And, and my dad was a great man, and, and I'm not bashing him, but he wasn't a man that lived with intention. And so here's the reality, that everyone ends up somewhere. Few people end up there intentionally. Everywhere, everyone ends up somewhere, but few people end up there intentionally. And that's because your decisions lead you to a destination, but few people intentionally end up at the destination they want because they didn't plan for it, nor did they have the discipline to do what was needed. And so as we kind of wrap up today, here's what I want, here's my challenge for you guys. What's this one thing? Pick something in your life or maybe in each area of your life that you will finish this year. It's that, that great work that you cannot come down from. I mean, can you imagine what, what it would look like if you could, at the end of this year, accomplish just that one thing? What's the one thing you need to accomplish this next year? I'm going to challenge you guys to talk with God about that. For some of you, like I said, it may just be your relationship with God. You've been coming to church, but you haven't made that next step. And, my, and then join Rooted. Go on our website and, and, and sign up. Rooted is a 10-week discipleship program that will change your life, I promise. It changed mine, and it's changed thousands and thousands of, we've had like four or 5,000 people at this church go through this program. It's awesome. It's like a small group. I would love for you guys to get plugged in. I don't know what your next step is, but if your relationship with God is anything like mine, he's constantly tugging on your heart to show you what that next step is, that next decision that you need to make. Let me pray for us. God, I am, I am thankful, God, that you are a God that is, involved in our lives. And Father, as I reflect back on 2018, man, I was busy and I did a lot of things, but I don't know how often I invited you really into the things that I was doing. Therefore, it wasn't really that productive. So God, what I'm praying over myself when I pray over these people is that let 2019 be a year where we make you a priority in our lives, where we seek the plans, God, that you have for our lives. The Bible says, God, that you have plans for us to prosper. Plans, God, that not harm us, but plans that give us a future and a hope. And so Father, I just ask that you continue to encourage us, tug on our hearts and the decisions, Lord God, that you want us to make. Father, we love you. We commit this year to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.